Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your blood spilt for us, the seal of our redemption, Lord. And we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and wills to obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. For the next five weeks of Lent, we're going to be turning our collective attention to some of the parables of Jesus in a series I'm calling Preparing Through Parables. Toward the end of this sermon, I'll explain why I think these parables are particularly fitting for this season of preparation uh, for Christ's passion and resurrection, which we call Lent. Uh, But for now, let me just say that it's easy to recognize that parables are one of Jesus' favorite teaching tools. It's easy. We have all heard a parable before. I'm very confident of that. Um, Whether you're here this morning and you would say you're a Christian or you say you're not, Uh, Parables have actually made it into our cultural lingo. Most Americans know what is meant by a good Samaritan. Most Americans can picture what is a prodigal son or prodigal daughter. More than that, I I would venture to guess that, that most of you in this room could name a parable. Could probably even retell one in your own words. And there's a reason for that. These parables, they stick with us. They stick. Parables are these really earthy stories. Stories about vineyards and and dirt and yeast and fish and, and animals and servants and masters and debts and treasures. And these stories, from which all trappings of spirituality are seemingly absent... They tell these deeply profound spiritual messages. Most, if not all, of Jesus' parables are essentially analogies. Analogies between earthy things on the one hand that we we human beings are quite familiar with and spiritual things on the other hand that we need to become more familiar with. And in this way, parables, they portray God in perceptible ways. And they present us with a path for following Jesus. They show us what God is like, and they show us what it looks like to follow him. This morning, we're going to be looking at not just one, but two parables, both of which are some of the shortest parables that Jesus gave. They comprise just three verses between the two of them, perhaps maybe the shortest gospel lesson that we've read here. Our text is Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. This morning, I want to discourage you from looking at the text. I want to encourage you to just use your ears. You might even decide to close your eyes and imagine the scenes that Jesus sets before us. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, 
went and sold all that he had and bought it. While these two parables are are distinct, they're separate, Jesus delivers them one after another, and they affirm pretty much the same message without repeating the same exact form. The way Matthew sets this up is that Jesus is telling these two parables specifically to his disciples, to the twelve. That's unique. Most of the time, Jesus is telling parables to the crowds or to the religious leaders who are trying to question him and to trap him. Earlier in this chapter, Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is in fact giving parables to the crowd, the disciples ask him in verse 10, what's up with all the parables? Why are you doing this? Like, just speak plainly, Jesus. And what Jesus essentially says is that he uses parables because parables teach truth to those whom God has made capable of seeing and hearing. And they obscure the truth from those who are still spiritually blind and deaf. Dual purposes. Now, that first purpose I understand, to to teach deep truths. That makes sense. Jesus wants to get his message across. That second part, to obscure truths, I don't get that. Why would Jesus do that on purpose? Last week on the Feast of the Transfiguration, we talked about how human beings can only understand the things of God, who God is and what he's doing in the world, if God reveals it to us. God has to take the initiative. Now, the reason is because of human sin. Our rebellion against God has not just dulled our spiritual senses. It's removed them. It's excised them. It's killed them. So we have eyes, and yet they don't see. They don't see God, even if he's right in front of us. We've got ears, but we can't hear, even if he's speaking really loudly. The only way we can see and hear is if God gives us new eyes and new ears. And that's exactly what's happening with these disciples, and that's what Jesus is telling the disciples Essentially, I am giving you renewed spiritual senses in order to grasp the truths that I'm delivering in these parabolic vessels. But ultimately, what we need to recognize is that parables produce two very different responses in people. On the one hand, those with ears and eyes to hear, the message is utterly sensible, perfectly sensible. But on the other hand, those who still lack the eyes and the ears that God needs to give, parables are utterly senseless. Senseless. We know the first parable as the parable of the hidden treasure. Jesus invites us to imagine a man walking through a field. And we don't know why he's walking through the field. Maybe he's a tenant farmer and he's working that land for somebody else. Maybe he's just a traveler taking a shortcut. We don't know. What we do know is that as he's walking through the field, he stumbles on a treasure. It's supposed to be hidden. It's not so well hidden, I guess. So what we need to realize, first of all, this guy is not looking for this. He stumbles upon it. He's not some adventurer with a dead pirate's treasure map. He is in the field minding his own business, but then he makes this life-changing discovery. 
We're not told how, uh, how he find it, found it. We can use our imagination. Perhaps he's, he sees something shiny out of the corner of his eye, and as he gets a little bit closer and inspects it and pushes away some of the dirt, what he finds is a trove of precious metals and precious gems. Regardless of how he found it, um, as a quick aside, this isn't likely something to happen to us, right? While there are still people today who bury their wealth in the ground, whether because they're afraid of the government or they're afraid of banks or they're afraid of the apocalypse, most people who have vast amounts of money, they invest in banks or in the stock market. But those services just weren't available in Jesus' day, right? Neither were safes or home security systems or gated communities. And so perfectly reasonable people buried their treasure in the ground. So however this man found the treasure, immediately upon discovering the treasure, he covers it right back up. He didn't want anyone to know what he had found. Now that may seem reasonable to us on one sense, but remember this is Jesus teaching us, and this guy doesn't look too honest. This is not his. You don't just see naturally occurring treasure chests, right? Somebody else owns this. And so, it's here we need to understand something else about parables. Remember, parables are analogies. Analogies can always be overstretched. Not everything in an analogy is meant to be compared. For instance, if I were to tell you that the Arizona Cardinals are like South Mountain, what I mean is their season went up, and then their season went sharply down. What I'm not saying is that they are the result of tectonic activity or that they are covered in cacti. Make sense? So when we are hearing a parable, we have to use it, we have to listen on its terms. With Jesus' analogies, we interpret what Jesus meant to say, keeping within the boundaries of the analogy he's making. So while at first glance, it sure seems like this dude in the field is a deceitful jerk, Let's stick with the story and hear what Jesus is saying. After covering up the treasure and making sure nobody else finds out about it, the man is overcome with emotion. What's the emotion? Joy. Joy. He's got the joy, 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 joy down in his heart. If he can get this treasure, he's rich. He's rich. His life changes. Imagine what it would be feel like if, if you were walking down the sidewalk of your neighborhood or, or in the place where you work, and you see a piece of paper on the ground. And normally, um, you just pass litter by. It's not your job to pick it up, right? So you just pass it by. This time, you get a little bit closer and you inspect it. Turns out, it's a lottery ticket. And it's a lottery ticket that's already been scratched. And it turns out, it's a winning ticket to the tune of $1 million. How do you feel? How do you feel? Joy, 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 down in your heart. And Jesus says that this man's joy, in that joy, that overwhelming emotion, he goes home. What does he do? He sells everything he has. He sells everything he has in order to raise enough capital to buy the field. Now here we learn a few more clarifying details about the situation. First of all, this guy isn't just going to steal the treasure, right? Instead, he knows that if he can rightfully purchase the field, then he can rightfully own the treasure that's buried in it. Second of all, it turns out this guy is not wealthy. He doesn't have money lying around 
to buy real estate like this. He doesn't have a way to possess the treasure without first dispossessing himself. Did you catch that? He can't possess the field and the treasure in it unless he first dispossesses himself, not of some of his things, but all of them. All of them. Who cares? Who cares? The treasure in the field is worth giving up everything in order to get that thing, right? And so when this man has finally liquidated all of his assets, he goes and he finds the owner of the field and he buys it from him. And we don't know if he got a good price. It doesn't matter. We don't know if the seller uh, was willing to let it go easily or if he had to be convinced. It doesn't matter. What we know is ultimately where one man saw a field, the other man saw a treasure. Who was right? Who was right? The guy who saw a treasure. The guy who saw a treasure. It's a treasure. Yes, there's a field, but the treasure. The next parable has the same message, but the wrapping is a bit different. It's the, it's the parable of the pearl of great price. In the scene, we find another man, and this time we know this guy's line of work. He's a merchant. What do merchants do? They buy and they sell things for a living. Now, Jesus tells us this merchant, rather than just stumbling upon this treasure, that's significant, he actually goes looking for it. He looks for something of great value. What's he in the market for? He, he wants pearls. He knows there are pearls out there, and so he goes after them. I just read a, a news article this past week. Maybe you saw it too. There's a couple in New Jersey who, upon visiting their, you know, one of their favorite restaurants and ordering their usual clam appetizer, when they got to the last clam, the husband put it in his mouth, and he realized this is not exactly just clam meat. Uh, hidden in the meat was, was a pearl, so the pearl's also in his mouth. He pulls the pearl out. It's about eight millimeters. It's something worth several thousand dollars. That's not how most people find pearls, Right? <laughs> Um, if we're going to find pearls, guys, we go shopping. We go shopping for pearls. And this is what the merchant does. And although we're not explicitly told this, we would believe that since this guy is a merchant, he is going out to buy pearls in order that he might then sell them at a markup. Right? That's how buying and selling things works. Well, on one particular day, the merchant discovers exactly what he's after. It's a pearl that's in incredibly valuable. Now, not inside of an oyster or a clam, right? But actually in the possession of someone else, perhaps another merchant. And so just like the man from the first parable who had to sell everything that he had in order to buy the field, this merchant goes home and he sells everything in order to buy the pearl. There's a difference, though. The difference is that this merchant likely had a good deal of wealth. Merchants were profitable. They still are. And anyone who goes looking for valuable pearls has money to spend. So this guy, first of all, he's not in the same socioeconomic class as the first. But yet, the result is the same. It's the same result in order to get the object of his affection, the pearl of great price, he still has to liquidate every asset he has. It costs him everything. 
And the way the parable ends is with the merchant buying and then possessing that pearl. In other words, he does not go and sell it. He keeps it. That's a crazy merchant. Jesus wants us to understand something and then to believe it by telling us these parables, right? And that's the point of Jesus' teaching. But we need to remember that, that Jesus could have just come out and said it directly. Like, just tell us. Speak plainly, Jesus. There are places in the Gospels where Jesus speaks about as plainly as you can get, right? He says some uh, kind of offensive things sometimes. Instead... Here, Jesus takes a different tack. He uses a different strategy to get his message across. You know the story of the, the, the Trojan horse? When I, whenever I think of the Trojan horse, I first go to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, maybe you're like me. It's not exactly as Monty Python tells it. You know, the, the Greek army of old, they devised a plan to conquer the city of Troy, and rather than besieging the city walls, they wanted to bypass those walls altogether, and so they cleverly built this large wooden horse, and they gave it to the people of Troy as a present, and the people of Troy wheeled it into the city gates, and by nightfall, the Greek soldiers who were inside the horse came out, and they sacked the city. Parables are a bit like this. They seem straightforward, but yet they're subversive. Jesus has just told us two unsuspecting stories, both of them short and sweet, simple and memorable. If I asked you to tell them back to me right now, you probably could, and that's the strategy. Because once we've let our guards down and we've taken these stories into ourselves, the truth slips out and subdues us. And what is the truth? The truth is, God's kingdom is far more valuable than any sacrifice one could make to acquire it. God's kingdom is far more valuable than any sacrifice one could make to acquire it. That's the truth. Now, there are some truths in the world that are innocuous, they're harmless. They're things that they don't demand you do anything in response. In response, they're just facts. The ocean is blue. Okay, moving on. The, the message of Jesus' parables are not like those truths. They don't leave us alone. They're not harmless. They're not just facts. They demand a response. You have to do something with them. And I think the easiest way to understand how Jesus' parables demand a response for us is in the questions that they pose. The questions they pose. Now, now these questions, they're not explicit in the parables. Jesus doesn't just ask the question when he's done giving the parable. Rather, they're implied by the stories themselves. The two parables that we've looked at today, the parable of the, the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price, They ask us one main question together. What do you want more than anything else? What do you want more than anything else? The things that we want more than anything else end up being the things that we worship. We can't not worship. And the things that we worship 
are the things that we will ultimately sacrifice everything else in order to get. And the things that we sacrifice everything for, if they are not Jesus and his kingdom, Jesus tells us they end up costing us our souls. That's the price, the ultimate price. And that's why this question matters. This is why the truth of the parable demands a response. What do you want more than anything else? There are many times I reflect on this question and I do not like how I answer it. That's the point. I don't desire rightly. And my guess is neither do you. These question, this question from Jesus, it doesn't leave us alone. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly teaching all of these religious people, these religious Jews, that God is not content to just be a part of your life. God must be your life. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is teaching all of us, religious people, that God is not happy to just be one of the things that you're after. He must be the thing you're after. And Jesus doesn't pull punches, not with his plain statements and not with his parables. Jesus says in a much more straightforward way in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Likewise, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things that you need, they will be then added to you. In the two parables, each of the men ended up selling everything that they had. The poor guy and the rich guy, in order to acquire the thing they wanted more than anything else. As we hear that, are we to understand that they lost everything in the process? That at the end of the story, they're somehow poorer than they were when they began? That we should feel sad for them? No. Just the opposite. The thing they wanted more than anything else was actually far worth far more than whatever it is that they had to begin with, whether they were rich or poor. They didn't lose anything. They gained everything. In fact, the only way that these two guys could have lost something significant is if they looked at the treasure or if they looked at the pearl and said, no thanks. Not for me. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like this. It's like this. It's far more valuable than any sacrifice you could make to acquire it. In seeking after Jesus, whatever appears to be a loss, whatever sacrifices you have to make to do so, they're not actually losses. Our perception is wrong. The only real losses 
are suffered by those who look at Jesus and say, no thanks. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And this is just what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, through which there really is no loss. In the season of Lent, we emphasize giving up, right? Most people in our culture, even if they're not Christians, they know that that's associated with Lent. And this giving up, it is not just about some um, ascetic self-denial. It is meant to open our eyes to the things that we want more than we want Jesus. We want sin, and so we need to give it up through repentance. We want to be self-reliant, and we want to, to use our time however we please, and so we give those things up through prayer. We want our food and drink, and we want it now, and we want it the way that we want it, and so we give those things up through fasting. And man, do we want our wealth. And so we give those things up through tithes and offerings. If giving up our sin and and giving up our self-reliance and and giving up our food and drink and giving up our wealth, if those are the things that we are uh, doing during Lent, are they really losses? If we are drawn closer to Christ and closer to his kingdom, what are we really giving up? As it turns out, contrary to the lie that Satan has been telling humans since the very beginning, God does not wish to deprive you. God does not want your life or your Lent to be miserable. God wants to give you everything. wants to give you everything. If you asked either man from the parables, was it worth it? What would they say? Duh. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. It's like that. In closing, I want to say this. Parables, they they point us to and they prepare us for the cross. In fact, the cross operates much like a parable. A parable which Jesus enacts, one that he dramatizes for us. You see, the story of the cross is as seemingly earthy and unspiritual as it gets. It's a story about dirt and torture and wood and blood and nails and death. And yet it's a story that tells a deeper spiritual message than any moment in human history. Through it, we find out what God is like in perceptible ways. And we are given a path for following Jesus. Where some may just see an ordinary man nailed to a cross, we see the Son of God. Pouring out his love for us. 
Where one man saw a field, another man saw a treasure. And who was right? Whatever it takes to receive this salvation from God, whatever sacrifices Jesus will have you make, and they will come. What is clear is that in the end, there is no real loss. There's no real loss. There's no real loss. Just gain. Just gain. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear and wills to obey. Amen.